Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for adopting us as your own and for filling us with your spirit. Lord, thank you for the sweet kids headed to faith. Kids, we pray for those teachers and for each child that they would hear your voice through your word, feel your love and connection with each other this morning. We pray for your blessing upon them. Lord, we pray for our world. We pray for Ukraine, the violence, the destruction, the needless death. Oh, Father, we pray for your intervention, for peace where there is not peace. For your children there, Lord, that you would be filling them with your spirit in trust they would shine like lights amidst darkness. Lord, we pray for those in our lives who this morning are not well. We pray for your healing for them, for your comfort for them, for your strength for them. Lord, we pray for friends and family who this morning labor and work and aren't able to be with us. Lord, would you strengthen them and make yourself known to them even as they work this morning? And finally, Lord, we ask that you would fill each one of us in this room and online with your Holy Spirit, that we could hear your word to us this morning, from you to us. Would you transform us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 4. The very end of it, Acts 4, 32 to 36. Acts 4, 32 to the end. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, this passage this morning may sound familiar to you because only two chapters earlier, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, we have another summary from Luke that sounds almost exactly the same. He said this there, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So his repetition of some of the same content here is meant to underscore for us 
and highlight for us what was important and noteworthy about these followers of Christ. He didn't want us to miss what God had done in them and what only God could have done in them. These ordinary human beings had been so radically transformed by the risen Christ that the life they lived together sounds sort of like a fantasy, like something that's too good to be true. Before we go any further with this passage, I'd like for us to dwell on what we see in these ordinary followers of Jesus and in their life together. If you're like me, the temptation when you read a passage like this is to quickly move beyond it and to try to apply it to our own lives today. We can begin thinking, how could this work today or how wouldn't it work today? But then we miss seeing, we miss taking in the beauty that God did in the lives of ordinary flesh and blood human beings. So let's hold them, these disciples of Jesus, in action before us and let's look at what God did in them. It's breathtaking. The opening phrase of our section today is the full number of those who believed. The full number of those who believed. And that's meant to draw attention that this was happening in the whole group of people. Not just a few here or a few there or the apostles or key leaders, but the entire group. Every single ordinary human being who had believed. This full number who had believed was a diverse group of people, a rapidly growing diverse group of people. Luke gives us three snapshots before this passage in the book of Acts to give us a sense of the size and diversity of this group. The first one was in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. There Luke says, the company of persons altogether was about 120 people. Then in the next chapter, Acts 2, Verse 41, we can read, it says that there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000. So 120, 3,000. And then right before our passage today in Acts chapter 4, 4, Luke tells us that the number of men came to be about 5,000. 5,000. And that was just the men. Some, some scholars think if you would count the women and the families, we're talking about at least 10,000 people already believing in Christ. That's astounding growth. And you can imagine with such rapid growth, challenges would come. Even just getting that many of new believers up to speed about what it would look like to follow Christ in their life, that would be a massive undertaking. The growth and assimilation of so many new people makes what follows even more improbable, apart from a powerful and undeniable work of God's Spirit. What we're reading today could not happen. But the size of the group wasn't the only challenge that they would have faced together. They faced the challenge of being a diverse group who had diverse experiences of Jesus and his teachings. Some of them in that group had literally walked with Jesus, they had heard him speak and teach. They saw him confront evil powers that had mastered people. They saw him do miraculous signs and wonders. But as the group grew more and more, fewer and fewer of them had actually walked with Jesus in that way, like the apostles and the earliest disciples did. In addition to that, this diverse group experiencing Jesus in different ways, 
this church that was located in Jerusalem would have been made up of people from a variety of backgrounds and even languages at this point. We saw early on in Acts at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit filled them, they began to speak in languages that they hadn't known before. Thus, God overcame the need for translation. He overcame the need they had for the gospel to be proclaimed in languages that they did not know yet as the early church. You can see the whole list of places in Acts chapter 2. I won't go through them today, but it's actually a really long list. And Luke says, he summarizes it, and he says, there were Jews living in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, which would, would have meant at that time people encompassing from just about the whole Roman world at that point were together. So it's within this rapidly growing and diverse group of believers that we see this astonishing display of radical unity and radical generosity. Despite their diversity, they had in common what was important, Christ. A conviction that Jesus is Lord, the long-promised King whose reign would never come to an end and who would set all things right. Their allegiance was to the crucified and risen Christ and Christ alone. They had been purchased by God and they belonged to Him. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit. God had taken up residence within them and they were in the process of being renewed, transformed to resemble their King more and more. Clearly, while they were ordinary human beings, just like us, flesh and blood, they lived not with the ordinary powers of human life, but with the supernatural power of God's Spirit and His kingdom. This is human life on a whole different plane of existence with new possibilities and new powers. When Jesus lived on earth, human beings were given a front row seat to what true and full human life was meant to be. Jesus lived a life that continually drew upon God's kingdom. It was an undying life of power and love that transcended natural human ability. And now we see ordinary followers of Jesus experiencing that same eternal kind of life in their lives as he worked in them these disciples increasingly were resembling their master. The things that he had shown them and taught them, they lived and obeyed. And through them, the Roman world was beginning to be turned upside down. They trusted Jesus, the person of Jesus, not just what he had done for them or what he had taught them, but Jesus. They trusted him in every area of their lives. This life that they were living and experiencing was not just an improvement on their old life, but a whole new creation with new possibilities and power. I love how C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, a, a once atheist who then became a follower of Christ, described this new kind of humanity. Listen to what he said. God became man to turn creatures into sons not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, 
but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could have never been jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. The kind of life that they were receiving from Jesus was completely new. It wasn't just improving the old. I love how Lewis says that. This horse can jump only so high. It is only if it's given wings that it can learn to fly. That's what they were experiencing. That new spirit-empowered human life is what Luke is trying really hard to alert us to here. It has come. It is available. And these believers in Jerusalem are living it. Luke says first that they were of one heart and one soul. All those who were together believed and they were of one heart and one soul. That is, they were a diverse group of people, a diverse group of friends who shared a common identity and a common purpose. It's clear by the way they cared for each other that they saw each other as family. They took responsibility for one another's well-being. One family's problem of not having enough became the problem of the whole group. This radical unity they were experiencing didn't come from their Greek or Roman culture of their day, but it was something that God had promised long ago. Jeremiah 32, 39 gives a foretaste of what they were experiencing. It says, I will give them one heart in one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Luke wants us to see that this is the unfolding and the outworking of God's plan of redemption, long foretold and long promised. There was to be no doubt God was doing what he had promised he would do and what only he could do. The unity that they were experiencing in identity and in purpose came from their mutual inclusion in the family of God through Jesus. God had redeemed and adopted each one of them as his sons and daughters, and in doing so, made them part of the same family together. I want to point out right now that this identity was something that was given and received. Their identity was given and received, and that identity led to a shared purpose and priorities. Identity always precedes purpose and action. That order is important. They didn't just decide one day, hey, we should be family. We should do life together and share our possessions. We should have the same identity and purpose and goals for our lives. Let's make that happen. That's not how it went. They received a new identity from God, an identity that they didn't need to earn or manufacture. They didn't need to constantly strive and grasp to maintain it in some way. They were really and truly brothers and sisters, filled with the same Holy Spirit, And because of that shared identity that they had with each other, they shared a purpose to live for Christ and for his kingdom. That is, instead of living for their own individual kingdoms, their own competing priorities and preferences, they laid down their individual kingdoms. They submitted their God-given sphere of influence to Christ's kingdom. 
because it's in the prioritizing of our own kingdoms and our own preferences that is the result that results in all the conflict and all the division and all the disunity that we experience in the world. We find that as soon as we live for our own kingdom, our own ways, our own goals, other people do not because they didn't get the message that their kingdoms were supposed to be subservient to mine. Our kingdoms are in conflict with each other. They laid theirs down and lived for Christ and his kingdom. And that shared identity and that shared purpose meant that Jesus' way of life, a life of self-giving love, was to also be theirs. And this is true for us today as well. Each one of us who has trusted Christ has received that same shared identity and that same shared purpose as those believers in Jerusalem did. Many of you this morning could attest to how you've experienced this belonging to a new family of brothers and sisters. You've tasted the sweetness of sharing one heart and one soul with others. But I think if we're honest, there are a lot of us who feel like we have not experienced that. Or that maybe we have experienced it somewhat, but that things could be so much better. And maybe you've even felt hurt Full disclosure, if that's you, sadly, you're you're not alone. My very deepest hurts have come from other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not supposed to be that way. It grieves God's heart when his children are in conflict. What causes the disunity, the disintegration, and the broken relationships? It's sin. Sin promotes disunity, and disintegration. It divides us from each other. It steals our joy and dehumanizes us. But the pain and hurt do not have to be the end of the story. Sin and evil do not need to win. There can be true and lasting forgiveness and healing in broken relationships. But again, not through ordinary human powers and abilities. A horse without wings cannot fly. These things can be redeemed and healed, but that's only possible if we, like a horse given wings to fly, are given new power and love and new abilities. Radical unity requires radical reconciliation. Radical unity requires radical reconciliation. The solution for sin between brothers and sisters in Christ is the grace of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that just as Christ is the mediator between man and God, Christ is the mediator between man and man. Just as Christ mediates our relationship and our connection to God, he mediates our relationship and connection with each other. It is through Christ that we are reconciled to God and it is through Christ that we are reconciled to each other. Jesus has made every provision for our sin and the sin of others. In him and him alone can and will all things be set right. Think of Jesus' teachings about this. When he taught his disciples to pray, he assumed that they would need forgiveness from God and from each other. He said, 
Pray like this, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And he took the radical step of connecting our forgiveness with God with our forgiveness of each other. He also said in that same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there realize that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And after that, come and offer your gift. With that teaching, Jesus again assumes that his, his apostles, his disciples, would need forgiveness and reconciliation with each other. He made it very clear that he placed a high priority on its necessity. Church, brothers and sisters, as we worship this morning, you may know that there is someone who you need to be reconciled to. Do not delay. Obey Jesus, depend upon him, and do not let anything stand in the way of you and your brother or sister. Ask for forgiveness, be reconciled. Ask God to heal the hurt that's in your own heart. He is more than capable of doing so. We were made to be one heart and one soul together. How else could we grow in this radical unity? Two things came to my mind this week as I thought about this. One, we need to constantly adjust ourselves to the reality of who we are in Christ. Constantly. We need reminder after reminder of what is real. That we have been purchased by Christ and belong to him, and now we are his sons and daughters who belong to each other. We are family. This reality can be too easily forgotten. And two, we need to be constantly refreshed in Christ, connected with him, and in turn refreshed in our purpose for our life together. Not just his purpose for my life or his purpose for your life, but our purpose together under him. This happens as we abide with him in his word and in prayer together. Shared time with Jesus in his word and prayer is one of the best things to anticipate and enjoy the unity that we have in Christ. Well, this radical unity, as we read, was accompanied by radical generosity. Look again at verse 32. It says, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then skipping to verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was not a needy person among them. The undermining of the status quo in their community is staggering. So much so that it's almost difficult to imagine. I visited one of our local homeless shelters recently. At the time that I was there, there were 75 people living there and 14 kids. The people living at the shelter are in desperate need. While it's important and really good that we have shelters, wouldn't it be even better if we were able to say we have no need for a shelter here? 
Nothing short of God's powerful intervention could make it so. Just like their unity had been long promised by God, this radical generosity too was anticipated and promised long ago. Deuteronomy 15.4 says, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There will be no poor among you. The young Jerusalem church full of the Holy Spirit was experiencing this. Their hearts were so transformed by the Spirit of Christ in them that they made each other's concerns and problems their own concerns and problems. It's easy to imagine them saying, your problems are my problems. So much so that they would even give up what was theirs to provide for each other. Luke introduces us to Barnabas here at the end of this passage as an example, a practical example of someone who did that. He sold his field and gave it the proceeds to the poor. We'll hear more about Barnabas in the weeks to come. He's a very amazing and unique man full of the Spirit. It says, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Who did they belong to then? It's safe to say that they would have seen everything that they had as belonging to God, not to themselves. Just like they belonged to him, all of their stuff belonged to him as well. And if it belonged to him, then it was to be used for his good pleasure and his good purposes to accomplish the things that are on God's heart, God's priorities, and God's kingdom. I heard something like this this week from someone at our church here. They were reflecting on a time when God moved them to give a vehicle to a friend that was in need. As soon as I heard that, they had no idea I was preaching on this. I said, why did you do that? Why did you give your car to your friend instead of selling it and keeping the money for yourself? Their reply without hesitation was this, because God had given it to me and my friend was in need. That's a beautiful example of radical generosity in our midst, in our family here. We are not reading about a new law here, friends. We're not reading a new law. Luke was not writing that everyone must sell all of their possessions and all of their lands and that it was wrong to own them. They clearly owned houses because we read later that they were worshiping in them. He was not giving us a prescription prescribing a new law here, he was instead describing a breathtaking new reality that had come about. This was not a new quantitative rule for us to follow. Like if you own this much, then you need to sell this much. And we start counting. But a new qualitative way of life and clearly a distinctive mark of a disciple of Christ. A law could not produce this kind of generosity. A law like that would lead us to asking, have I done too little or have I done enough? The focus in that case is on self and on the justification of self. Instead, the radical generosity we're reading about here leads to people asking, do they have enough? 
or God, how do you want to use me to help them with their need? The focus moves then from ourselves and are we doing it right to the needs of those around us and the loving heart of God. In the same way that Jesus had taught his disciples about forgiveness, he had taught them about giving and being generous. He assumed that his disciples would be giving and that would be so commonplace that they needed instructions to know how to do it correctly. We've talked about that teaching and, and months before this, if you look up the spiritual discipline of secrecy, it was in that message. But his teaching prohibits engaging in generosity for show or for human accolade. Instead, it ought to be done from the heart with full confidence of the loving gaze of God and his promise of reward to us. Jesus is always concerned in his teachings that our living would flow from our heart, from our being rather than merely just appearing. The result of becoming a disciple of Jesus and being indwelled by that spirit is the redirection of our heart from a continual and habitual gaze upon our own needs to a heart that's looking outward at God's kingdom and his priorities and the needs of others around us. That concern and that love that he produces in us then moves to radical action. It goes way beyond words. It's astonishing and it demonstrates new creation, resurrection life. The example I gave earlier of generosity in our church is just one of a great many that I'm aware of. One of the most profound experiences of generosity in my life happened eight years ago through this church before I lived here or was a pastor here. Our family was visiting Faith Church and sharing with you what God had just done through a summer with college students as we served as missionaries among them. I had shared about a student that I had met and become quite close with named Misha from the small Eastern European country of Moldova. You may have been hearing about Moldova on the news lately because they're a very small neighbor right next to Ukraine. That Sunday we were here, I played a video that Misha, who was now back in Moldova, had made for the church to show and explain how he had encountered Christ that summer in Wisconsin Dells, where we were serving with our students. Some of you might be remembering that video. Well, a couple weeks after our visit here, we were back home. I received an email from a family from this church about Misha. The video said that God had put Misha on their hearts and that they thought it was really important that I would travel to Moldova to visit him and to minister to him. They wanted me to book tickets and to let them know how much I needed. Whatever I needed to visit him, they would provide. As I read that message and felt the weight of this family's radical generosity towards Misha and me, I was overwhelmed by God's love and I broke down in tears and actually hit the ground on my knees. You see, Misha was on his own. He was an orphan. He had no biological family left. His grandma who had raised him passed away shortly after he returned from summer in the Dells that year. And because of the grace of God and the generosity of one family, 
who listened to his voice, I was able to go and visit with him and love him and be with him. He was not alone. One of the highlights of my time with Misha in Moldova was a visit to a house church one Sunday. We had been in the city center of Chisinau, which is their capital city, city of over a million. And we took a couple buses, they're called mini buses, pretty small and pretty tight, for me at least, to the edge of the city where we were waiting for a new friend of Misha's named Victor to pick us up. Misha said he had just gotten to know this guy. He pulled up in a white work van, opened the door, and there was a wooden bench along the side wall of the van, like a church pew, I guess. We got on the pew, Victor shut the door, and it was so black in there I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. There were no windows. I felt a little nervous. Hopefully he knew this Victor uh, well enough. I literally did take my phone out and pull a map up to make sure we were headed to where I thought we were heading. We did arrive safely at the church, the house, in a village, and joined them for their worship in the living room. They speak Romanian or Russian there, and I do not. So Misha would occasionally and kind of awkwardly translate for me what they were saying. The topic that Sunday when I was there, I don't know if this was an accident or on purpose, was about how some Christians are very well off and other Christians are very poor. How are they to make sense of that? It was a topic that hadn't left my mind since I had entered the country of Moldova. You see, it's the, it's the poorest country in Europe. They have very few possessions. The conditions that are normal for them are very different from what is normal for us. For example, I bet men in their 20s working jobs who would share a bed in the apartment living room of another family's because they had no other option. But here's the thing that really struck me about them. The Moldovan followers of Christ that we visited while I was there were unbelievably hospitable and generous. Even though they didn't have much, they were generous of what they did have. The Spirit of Christ in them had clearly shaped their hearts to be giving despite their lack. No one would have blamed them if they lived with a scarcity mentality, hoarding what little they had for themselves. But they didn't. Instead, they lived from a place of abundance in Christ, clearly trusting in Him to provide for all of their needs. Being with Misha and his friends was a humbling and life-changing experience for me. They so wonderfully demonstrated that radical generosity is not about what you have, but about what you do with what you have. So what could this radical generosity look like for us? What could it look like us to increasingly and joyfully care for one another? We have this example in Acts of the Jerusalem Church, and other examples are probably coming to your mind of being in a position to give or receive from the abundance of Christ around you. And there are many ways that our church is practicing this reality already, this abundance in Christ. We have benevolence ministry. We have giving of offerings. And then there's just the helping each other when we have need, like I described earlier. 
the more I've thought about what does this need to look like today, the more I'm convinced that the most important thing for us to keep in mind is that this is something we need to continually grow in. None of us has arrived or mastered being radically generous. Just like none of us has arrived and mastered being loving or being gentle or being patient. We need to continually grow in all of those things towards greater and greater Christ-likeness. What that means for generosity is that no matter where we find ourselves this morning, we can, relying on the same Holy Spirit that they relied upon, take steps to grow. We can take the next step that God puts before us. We can ask God, God, show me this week how to be generous with what you have given me and give me the strength to follow you as you lead me. I want to give a quick warning, though. For many of us, when we start thinking about money or possessions and giving, we can quickly feel guilty, thinking, I haven't done enough. I need to be doing more. But here's the thing about a guilty feeling. While it's helpful to alert us that something might be off, it's very ineffective at bringing about lasting change and the sort of hearts that Christ intends for us to have in this. Instead of guilt driving us towards change, we need something better and more powerful. We can see the better and more powerful in this passage this morning. As all of this was happening in that early church, in the context of what Luke describes as great power and great grace, look at what he says. He says, with great power The apostles were preaching the gospel. They were giving witness to the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, great grace was upon them all. Great grace. That is essential for us to hear this morning. This unity and this generosity were evidence of the grace of God at work among them. God's grace is his favor, his blessing, that is shown as his action on our behalf. Sometimes we think of grace only in the category of forgiveness of sins. While it's related to that, an important part of forgiveness of sins, grace is bigger than that. It's also what followers of Jesus live by each day, each moment of our lives. God's action, his power, his spirit's presence in us are all the result of his grace. His grace changes us, His grace motivates us, and it empowers us. And it is only by grace that we will grow in the radical unity and the radical generosity that we can see in the Jerusalem church this morning. His grace frees us from guilt and enables us to joyfully desire growth and change. Church, let's rely on His grace together, anticipating His powerful work in us and among us, drawing us together more and more in radical unity, in the deepening of our connection with each other, and then deeper and deeper into radical generosity that we ourselves are astonished by, and that draws more and more people into Christ who don't know him yet. Let's pray. Lord, your Spirit's work is startling 
and amazing and wonderful. Lord, our heart's desire this morning is to live and walk in what you have done for us. Would you solidify in our hearts this morning our received identity in you, that we now belong to you and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that we don't need to manufacture that or make that happen. That is what is real and true about us. And Lord, we know that you've given to each one of us. Would you give us the grace and the power we need to be generous with what we've received from you? Would you fill our hearts with joy and great anticipation at what you will do in and among us as we take step after step closer and closer to the Christ of heart, the heart of Christ in this? We pray in his name, Jesus, amen.